I don't think there's a replacement for the feeling you get or the layering a room sort of takes on when you are working with things in their original finish with their original patina. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. Celebrity and award-winning interior designer Nate Burkus is our guest today, and I couldn't be more excited. Nate's been on the block for quite some time, but it seems that with each year, he gets more and more relevant. He's a master at mixing vintage and new, and when I need some home inspiration, he's my go-to. Nate and his husband, Jeremiah, have just started their second season of their HGTV show, The Nate and Jeremiah Home Project, and Nate has also just launched his own line of home goods, Nate Home. Being that he's a vintage guy, I knew he had to be a collector of sorts. Nate's got an amazing collection of vintage furniture and home goods, some of which you can buy directly from him, but a lot that he's keeping in his personal collection and homes as well. We talk about how his nights usually end with him scouring auctions on his phone and how he's still hunting while on vacation. There's a lot of exciting projects he's got going on, some of which are still under wraps, but one thing remains the same. And that's that he's still hunting and scouring at all times. So without further ado, this is Nate Berkus for Collector's Gene Radio. Nate Berkus, thank you so much for joining me today on Collector's Gene Radio. My pleasure. I was watching what you're doing with the podcast, Cameron, and I was very flattered to be asked. So thank you. Oh, well, it, it goes both ways. So I've actually been a fan of yours for a really long time now. And honestly, my, my mother, who we lost a little over a year ago, introduced me to you when I got my first apartment and showed me a bunch of your stuff. And I'll never forget it. She was like, hey, Cam, this is the guy and you have to get everything that you see here at the store. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And I still have it all today. So needless to say, I've been a fan of yours. And, and while I haven't been around my whole life to watch your career flourish, I've been following you for as long as I, I have been. So, Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. I have so many questions for you today from design to collecting and decorating and all that sort of stuff. But let's kind of start at day one. You started your company in 1995, if I'm correct. And while you didn't necessarily get your BA in interior design, you grew up in a household kind of around that stuff. Is that correct? I did. And my mother divorced my dad when I was 18 months old and moved us back in with her parents years ago. And this was, you know, early 1970s. And she sort of started a design business by starting out helping people kind of pull their spaces together. And then she went back to school and then she founded a bunch of chapters for sort of accredited designers as her career went on. But I definitely was lugging wallpaper books. That was my chore in from the (laughs) trunk of her car. And also, you know, in in all fairness, my mother was really primarily interested in things that were old. And so growing up in suburban Minneapolis, you know, it's not like a bastion of antique shops. It's not like where people think, you know, you can really source beautiful vintage or antique furniture or porcelain or silver or whatever, but you can. And so I spent a lot of my childhood going to 
auctions and estate sales and sort of multi-dealer antiques malls and walking behind my mother and being dispatched to the front desk so that they could get a key and open a case to show her something that she liked. And I think that that sort of lesson, if you will, that internship at 10 years old and eight years old um, has stayed with me, you know, my entire life. You now have a celebrity and award-winning design firm. Did you ever dream of being in this position when you got into interior design? No, I got into interior design because I was working for an auction house based in Chicago. I interned there when I was in university in Chicago and I ended up, that was my first job out of college. And the only reason I started my firm was that I had this inkling that I could do it and that I would figure out what I didn't know, but also that um, I just couldn't make that 8 a.m. breakfast meeting that the auction house had every Monday morning. And the boss used to charge us $5 if we were even a minute late. And so every Monday I had to pay her $5 and it drove me out of my mind. So the truth is... I'm going to do that to my wife next time we're late for dinners. (laughs) Um, It's, uh, you know, it was crazy. And then in the end, design was the only thing I really felt like I had like a real skill set around. But I just wanted to sleep in. Little did I know, you know, 27 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> I just wanted to be my own boss, and that was kind of my path to that. And now you've done collaborations with some of the biggest names in the industry. Um, you have your own TV shows. You served as an executive producer for an Oscar-winning film. You were a regular on Oprah. I mean, the list goes on. And I'm sure that all of these things have culminated to help you get to where you are today. But is there a, something in particular that really propelled your career, maybe a specific project? You know, I I would have to say I'm a firm believer in giving credit where credit is due. And I had a successful design firm before I met Oprah and was asked to be start doing makeovers on her show. But I don't think that that 26 year old kid had any sense of what the licensing or the publishing or the producing world was prior to that. Um, In fact, I know I didn't. And so, you know, what was interesting about the opportunity and and. I was on the Oprah show almost monthly for 12 years consecutively was that one, it taught me what to say no to because that was a really important element. All these opportunities come flying out of the woodwork for product lines and endorsement deals and commercials and all these things. And luckily I was at least smart enough to have a smart team of people around me. And even though I was, you know, in my mid twenties, I guess I was, prescient enough to know that if I wanted there to be any longevity around my career and around my brand, then I needed to be strategic and not just do stuff for the money. Is there a dream collaboration for you? You've done some amazing ones, and I'm sure a lot of those were dreams at one point, but someone maybe you haven't worked with? You know, it's funny that you say that. I have this like absolute obsession with estate and vintage jewelry. And I've never had the opportunity to play in that other than to find it at auctions and buy it and save it all for our daughter who's eight. But I would love to collaborate. And I have a lot of friends who are jewelers, like um, noted contemporary jewelers, Irene Newworth and Solange Azaguri Partridge and Monica Rich Cozan and, and Brooke Knight from Sydney Garber. Like I've never done a collaboration with jewelry. I don't even know if I'd be good at it, but it would be really fascinating to me. Absolutely. 
in my opinion, you do the most incredible job at mixing vintage and new. Has this kind of always been part of your MO? A hundred percent. You know, I, I think early on, and part of this is a bit of a Midwest upbringing, but I've never really been a snob about where things come from. If I see something at a, I used to buy things at garage sales on my walks home from school in elementary school. And I think that, um, you know, I, I just love finding things that other people don't have. And I love assembling spaces with, with pieces that someone's neighbor or mother-in-law doesn't own. And I love the tension that's created by mixing old and new, which is ironic because I sell new things. I sell them at Target. I sell them at li- living spaces. I sell them through Amazon at, at betting and all that stuff, which is fine. I think all that should be new. I don't want to sleep on someone else's sheets. But, you know, I think that probably 85% of what my firm sources for projects is old. And I don't think there's a replacement for the feeling you get or the layering a room sort of takes on when you are working with things in their original finish with their original patina. Couldn't agree more. And you and Jeremiah just launched a new show or second season rather, uh, Nate and Jeremiah Home Project. How has that been for you two to work together? You know, we, he's like my favorite person. I mean, we, you know, I actually can't imagine having a job or filming a show where we, we, we would say goodbye to each other at 6 a.m. and then see each other at dinner time with the children. So, I mean, I, I think for us, our heads are in the right place in that it's, you know, it, it, it's challenging because we work together. We both have separate firms, but like in terms of TV and some of our licensing projects, we, we do those as partners, business partners. And then we go home and, you know, our son has a fever. We have to, you know, go back to like raising the kids and being a family. But I do think that we're very lucky that we like to be with each other as much as we do. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for his perspective. Um, I don't think I could have married someone who I thought had bad taste. Like that would have been really hard for me. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. All right, let's let's dive into collecting a little bit. Sure. So it's no secret that you love all things vintage, but I think what a lot of people may not know about you is that you also collect vintage furniture and home goods as well yeah. as sell them, right? You have a first dibs page, a cherish page, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. When did this come about in your existence in this interior design world? So it, it's funny, um, two things, you know, one, I got my start at an auction house, which is, you know, as I'm sure, you know, fueled by three main things, death, death and debt and divorce. Right. And so, um, you know, it, I, I, the secondary market, which is first dibs and cherish now and all the auction sites and all of that stuff, um, and the flea markets and whatever, but the secondary market has always been a complete fascination for me. Um, I love, love, love the fact that you just don't know what you're going to stumble across. And I collect different places to source things from voraciously. I will canvas a foreign capital. I will find out where the local flea markets or fairs are if I'm in rural Portugal or wherever. So, I mean, I just love things that are secondhand. I love those that, that marketplace, whether it be online or in person. Um, and the first dib store that I have um, was actually started because we and we're 27 years into our design firm, and we've done multiple homes for a lot of people. And what really 
always bugged me was that you couldn't, you know, it was like a little bit embarrassing. I would like sell these people 7,000 square feet of vintage furniture and then they would move and some of the pieces they would take with them or some they wouldn't. And there there wasn't really a service that a design firm offered to say, you know what, I have all the original records. I have all the original receipts. Let me see if I can get my own shop on first dibs and sell all this stuff for you. And so it really started as an additional service to my design clients. And now it's like almost all I do after hours. Like I lay in bed next to my husband on auction websites. I buy everything I can get my hands on that I think is beautiful and underpriced. And then I recover things, I'll fix things, and then they go on First Dibs or on Cherish or on my own website. And I just, I love it. I feel like I'm back to that eight-year-old kid following my mother in an antique mall every day. What's the personal battle like between keeping some of these vintage goods or furniture for yourself versus selling them? You know, Jeremiah calls me a fancy hoarder. Um, <laughs> I, I, I resent the... the the, the descriptor, because I feel like for me, hoarding, aside from the fact that it's like a mental psychological condition, but I always know and appreciate what I've got. I'm not confused about what's on my bookshelves. I don't, you know, I know where that silver box came from. I remember the trip that I found it. So, you know, I think when you're hoarding, you have too many things, you don't remember or appreciate what you do have. Um, that's at least my personal definition, but I'm not sure. You know, let me let me go with that. I'm not sure because I'm sort of I'm, I'm right in the middle of all of it. Do you also use some of the items that you find at, at these auction houses for the projects that you work on? Um, yeah, all the time. And I think that, you know, for me, I have sort of an encyclopedic knowledge at this point in my career of furniture makers and designers and eras and materials. And so I'm definitely like an informed buyer and I try and pass that access on to my residential design clients. So I, I went on your website and I pulled a couple of my favorite interiors that you've done and pulled just like a couple items that are my favorite. And I'm hoping you could either tell me a story about how you found them or um, just a few details about these specific pieces. Oh, fun. Okay, great. I feel like this is like one of those, like the old game show, like this is your life. I like yeah, it. exactly. Don't don't mess this up. <laughs> exactly. <I'm nervous. laughs> um, in the West Village brownstone, you had this. It's either light light wood or travertine round table with a black marble top, and you had it near the fireplace. And I think it was also maybe in your Hancock Park home, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's been in several homes. So thank you, Cameron, for bringing that up. It still is sitting on Charles Street because the people who bought that place bought some of our furniture with it. That was part of the deal. And I'm still like bitterly angry about a lot of it, (laughs) Um, which is a ridiculous way to move through the world. And Jeremiah thinks I'm ridiculous, obviously, for many reasons, but that's one of his top ones. He's like, let it go. That table um, is a 19th century uh, French table. Um, It came from an antiques dealer here in New York City. And it has the original white painted sort of worn finish on the base. It's wood. And then the top is actually the original stone top um, in a, in a, in black marble in honed really old black marble. And it's rare to find those with the original top. 
And a lot of the detail, like the edge of that stone is, is um, rounded in a way that isn't really done frequently anymore. Um, and the whole thing is just really chalky and really worn and really beautiful. And I might have to end this podcast so I can walk back over to Charles Street and ask them for it back. <laughs> it's one of my favorite pieces in that house from, from the photos and whatnot. Also, I mean, the crown molding in that house is just out, out of control. That was, yeah, that's a, that was a great place. It really was. Uh, next one in your Manhattan penthouse triplex, there's a, a pair of vintage leather and brass Italian lights that kind of go over a couch. They're like reading lights. Oh yeah. Where'd you find those? How'd you source them? I found them on live auctioneers and they are Luigi Caccia Dominioni a Milanese architect from the mid-century. I think those were done in the 60s. They're so cool. They're incredible. The leather is actually weighted, so it sits on the arm of a chair or on a... I think when he designed it, it was meant to like go on a wing chair or like an armchair for reading. Right. But it's, it's like this chocolate brown leather, buffalo sort of leather, that thick kind of beautiful like the leather that's tanned in Italy that that they do so well and then the old brass globe it had to be rewired which was you know not simple but it was worth it when you posted that on Instagram uh talking about those I I commented right away and I was like where are these from and I got like five or ten messages of people responding to it like yes please figure out where they're from blah 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 (laughs) so now I went on I, I went online and I, I did like a deep dive trying to find them and I couldn't find vintage ones, but I did find a company out of Italy that does remake them. Oh, really? So cool. I wanted your opinion. If you think it's worth holding out, it's always worth holding out to find vintage ones. I just don't know that I ever will. It's worth holding out. It, okay. I mean, I really think it's worth holding out. You know, it's funny because new, new just doesn't have really a secondary value. Right. And that's, I think, the reason, one of the other main reasons why I've always been drawn to vintage and, and advised, you know, my clients to, to sort of stay the course. You know, you, you just, you, you can't really put a new fixture, if you tire of it, online for sale someday. Even if, well, you could, I guess, if you wait, you know, 60 years. But um, it's just- I really hoped you were going to talk me off the ledge. I know. I'm sorry. No, I won't. <laughs> but I will. Listen, I've seen your Instagram page and what you've got. So if you're ever interested in the trade, I'm open. <laughs> I 100% am. We'll, we'll make okay. something happen. I'll wrap it up right now. I can walk it right over to mailboxes. <laughs> Perfect. So you often say that one of the best gifts that you can give is a vintage frame. You collect these. You have a bunch of them. But is there something else in that category of gifting that is um, a great place for people to start collecting and gifting that's accessible. Yeah, for sure. You know, silver is a great place to start, especially because you can always find it, whether it's a box or a vase or a, like a decorative box or a, or a bud vase or a, a bowl. Um, you know, I, 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 we have a lot of silver things. I'm not even that fascinated by the material, but I'm fascinated by the sort of the workmanship, the chasing some details look like watch bands. Some things from Vienna look like foliate carvings and things like that. But I think that, you know, if you're smart, you know, you don't go to a silver dealer on, on Madison. You go to the flea market in Athens or the local antiques mall in Ohio. 
And I think that that's also something that's, I've given a lot of like little objects like that away over the years and they're always just really well received. I was in Long Island where my grandmother lives and every time I go visit her, we always go antique diving. My brothers always make fun of me for it, but it's my favorite thing to do. And we're in this antique shop that we always go to and I find this silver triple stepped bowl and it has an engraving on it from a country club that's down the street of some lady that got a hole in one during a tournament and they gave her this silver bowl and I use it at my place now as like a a nut bowl or you know an olive bowl or something like that if we have guests over and it was 10 bucks and it's silver and it's incredible yeah I love stuff like that in fact Jeremiah and I were on a trip to Laos and we took a boat on the Mekong River and it stopped and we walked through this like sort of hilltop village and there was an antiques store that they'd like turned the one hanging light bulb hanging from wire on and everything was sort of filthy and in these like wood cases and I found these beautifully chased silver like ornaments and I had no idea what they were and they were silver elephant tusk ceremonial like decorations that they went, they slid onto the elephant's tusks for like a, a, a ceremony. And I was like, I've never seen something so beautiful. Like these are so amazing. They could be candlesticks. They could, you know, but who cares? They could just be in a bookshelf. And what an amazing memory of this trip that he and I had in such a beautiful part of the world. And then I asked how much they were. And the, the guy said, $120. And I was like, that's crazy. Like $120, like we're on a hilltop. And Jeremiah looked at me and he goes, you get so weird and cheap in certain situations. And this is one of those situations. They're silver, like eight inch tall by three inch diameter, handmade ornamental elephant tusk holders and you don't want to spend $120 or whatever he said. He's like, we're leave. He's like, sir, we'll take them. And we you know, carried them around. And of course, they sat on our kitchen island every morning in LA. In our apartment now in New York, they're in, in, in the bookshelf that in the family room we're always gathering as a family. And it's just so funny to me that I almost missed that. But um, thank God my husband was like, you can't be cheap on a hilltop in Laos. You have to be a normal human being. I love it. Does Jeremiah love to collect as much as you do? Not at all. Not at all. He has, he's, not, he's not attached to anything. Nothing matters really to him. The experience matters. The object doesn't necessarily represent it for him. And I'm, I'm the polar opposite. And you, you love collecting items from France and Italy. Is there one out of the two that you prefer or maybe one that you've found some of your more, more cherished goods from? No, not really. Um, you know, because I'm happy to find something Italian in Bridgeport, Connecticut, too. I, I don't, I, you know, I would never put any sort of limitations on where you can find beautiful things. I mean, that's why I love seeing people killing it on Etsy and eBay and Facebook Marketplace. Like, we live in such a global world right now that, you know, I, I just think that there's, there's, there's just always an opportunity to find something beautiful and make it part of your own collection. And now you have a brand new collection, Nate home, you're back doing home goods, but this time 
it's just you, no large big box store behind it. This has to be uh, extremely exciting for you. It is. You know, it's the first opportunity that I, you know, when I set out to do this again, I really just didn't want to deal with a corporate environment. I didn't want to meet with their marketing team. I wanted complete creative control. I didn't really want to work with their buyers, even though I, I loved working with the target buyers. We used to like make bets on what towel colors wouldn't sell. And when I'd lose, I'd have to take everybody to a beautiful dinner in Minnesota. But it's a real opportunity for me. It's a, it's a big turning point in my career. I've only ever done deals with the retailer. And so now the fact that Nate Home is available at Kohl's and Target, back at Target, on Amazon with all these five-star ratings already, and it's two weeks old. I mean, it's just exciting to see what I consider to be the truest sort of version of the marketplace because it's it's just out there with a lot of with a lot of different points of sale now. Yeah, I really love the like off-white and then the brown stripe comforter and the matching shams. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's handsome stuff and the quality is really beautiful. Like it's and it's, you know, it's it's I didn't I've never wanted to design things that people couldn't afford. I've always catered to mass. We are launching a, another collection with a big retailer like a department store, which um, I can't announce yet, but that's a little bit, you know, pricier than anything I've ever done before in home. But, you know, the basic set of towels, the, the, the sheets that you want to sleep on every night, that's a real luxury. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely on my list of things to snag. So I'm excited for that. Anything brown, I love. Yeah, we can send you some, same. Oh, that'd be amazing. I also see that you love watches and I would have to assume that case and dial design are important things for you. I wore my Aquanaut today as I know that you have one as well. So I always notice that on, but is time more important to you or is design more important to you? You know, I used to buy myself a watch with every big sort of, I would hallmark a moment in my life or in my career by buying myself a watch. That was what I was always, um, that was to me like what it was, the, the physical representation of the hard work, a wearable, you know, physical. I don't wear really any jewelry but a watch and my wedding ring. But I think I'm a little bit out of the watch world. I, I have to tell you, I'm like a little bit like disillusioned with the price of things now. Um, you know, it's crazy. And I, I sort of have what I want. I used to like go crazy and get it in my head that there was a certain model or a certain maker or a certain design that I had to have. So it was about time, but not as about telling time. It was about marking the time of, in my life, which is where the acquisition sort of became interesting to me. And then, it, of course, it was always about the design. And, and also having things that not everybody wears was interesting to me. I've never bought a new, oh no, once I bought a new watch, like walked into a jewelry store or boutique and bought a watch and left with it in the box and the papers and the whole thing. I've only ever bought watches on the secondary market for, you know, 30 years. And I think that that again is like, it's also just like about, it was about finding it, finding that model, finding that metal, finding the the um, being able to change the strap, change the band, make it my own. 
that was that was always really fun for me. But I'm a little bit over it right now. I mean, I think it's crazy. Like some of the watches I own, I would never be able to go out and buy again. I don't blame you. And a lot of the stuff that you have right now that I've seen is amazing. And I can't imagine what else you would actually need in your collection of, of watches right now. You check a lot of boxes from my perspective. So. Oh, thank you. I mean, listen, I love my watches. I really do. I, I don't sell them. I don't get rid of them. Jeremiah wears some. He has a beautiful collection of watches too. But like when I'm standing in front of a, a watch that I know is beautiful, I just, something happened. I don't have to own it. All right, Nate, before we wrap up with the collector's gene rundown, I want to ask you one last question about collecting. You've had a lot of success in your life and you've also had some hardship, which you've been very open about. So how has collecting gotten you through all of these moments, good and bad? What a great question. Collecting for me is like, it's a really is a way of life. It informs a lot, I think, about how you move through the world and the people that you meet, how you live and how you assemble your life, sort of how you organize your life. And I find myself always feeling more connected human to human with someone else who collects. They don't have to collect the same thing that I do, but you know, someone who has this amazing collection of, of, of South American pottery or whatever, it's just, it's moving through life with that constant curiosity. You can never know everything. You're always learning. You're always on the hunt. You're always really excited by finding something that fits within your collection that you didn't have before. And there's a real childlike joy, I think, to collecting that people, you know, like you, you said initially, it's, it's not about the money. It's not about the status of stuff. It's not about, you know, having to have, none of that makes anyone happy. Like I, I don't, you know, if I had another watch, if I had one less, if I had one more silver frame, if I had one less silver box, would it change my life? Not at all. But you know, meeting people throughout the years that share this kind of passion, even my dad who collected sports memorabilia and baseball cards when he was little, that translated to me as a kid. I didn't care about baseball cards, but I did care about how hard he would, how the lengths he would go to to find the thing that he was missing or the, the, the time he would put into finding something that he knew he wanted or that he needed for his collection. And I think anyone with that collector's gene understands exactly what I'm talking about. It's a passion. And so when I've had gone through really difficult things in life, could I say that it saved me? No. I I mean, I, I think that that would be too, too general, but let's say this, like when my, my former boyfriend died in the, in the Indian ocean tsunami, you know, collecting things or finding things was the last thing I was thinking about. And then, you know, maybe a year later, I was with someone that I work with in my Chicago office and we were on this road trip to see a client's home and we saw this antiques mall and I got really excited and we were running up and down the aisles looking for the best stuff we could find. And I felt like I was coming back to myself in that moment. Um, It's ingrained in how I move through the world and how I see things and what I search for. Um, You know, it is still my favorite thing to do. And we're trying to teach our kids who actually seem to have a natural enjoyment for it as well. We call it treasure hunting. But, you know, it's a pastime. 
I guess it'd be like somebody else's yoga or their hike. You know, for me, it's shopping. Yeah, it's a great place to store, you know, mental energy to focus on something that um, makes you happy. Yeah, it's fun. And it's just, it's so fun. It's, and it's, it's never ending. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to my parents for sort of instilling that passion and like, and explaining their own, in their own ways, how they went about it being collectors. And it's a really interesting thing to be, when I was at the auction house, I would say like, I know a little bit about a lot of things. And as I've gotten older, I know more about the things that are truly interesting to me, be it furniture, decoration, or jewelry, or watches. But like the other day, we were on a family vacation with another family, and he is collects wine. I would not spend my money collecting wine. Like if, you'd have to put a gun in my mouth for me to like spend, you know, dollars or ten thousand dollars on a bottle of wine. I wouldn't even conceive of it. But listening to his excitement and stumbling upon this wine store in London and telling me like what they had and why it was interesting and why it was cool. It was like, we could have been talking about anything. It's just, it's a passion play. I love it. All right. Let's wrap it up with the collector's gene rundown. What's the one that got away? Well, I thought about this question, Cameron, and I actually owned it. It was a paddock steel Nautilus on a steel strap. Um, from this, from my birth year, from 1971, and it was stolen. And it, it, and maybe that's why I'm a little over the watch game now, because I've tried to get it back, and it's like, you know, it, it was stolen. I got the insurance money for it at the time, and then it's um, it, even with the insurance money, it's like ridiculous. Like I think my kids' education is more important. I'm assuming it was probably a reference 3700. Exactly. Yeah, they become unobtainium. Just so expensive. And I don't need it, but I'd, I'd like it back. It was actually the watch that I was wearing. I lost it twice. So maybe I'm not meant to have it. I lost it in the tsunami in 2005. And I lost it again in a, in a home, uh, in a burglary. And so, you know, maybe I'm just not meant to, to, um, to own it. Try the smaller one, the 3800, and see if you have better luck. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> They're a little bit cheaper too. Yeah, I'm going to kill you. Don't give me that kind of information right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about the on-deck circle? So what's next for you in your collecting? This could be in any and all the categories you collect in. Um, probably paintings and continuing with estate jewelry. I was always really intimidated by the world of sort of contemporary art. I'm far less intimidated now. So we've been slowly sort of adding to our walls painters and the works of people and artists that have had an impact on us visually or people that we've known. Um, And I love an original artwork. I really do. I don't care about works on paper, but I love a painting or a photograph or a drawing. So I, I love, and I love searching for them. And it's, my taste is pretty erratic from old masters to I'm sitting on the podcast with you right now, staring at a, a Spanish painter from the sixties that hangs in my offices in New York. And I, I like, it just brings me a lot of joy. So I would say that. Love it. Well, if there's anyone that can mix the two, it's you. I'm trying. It's <laughs> got a little weird in all fairness. You know, you order things, you buy things on an online auction in Europe or whatever. 
wait 500 years for it to arrive. And then you're like, why would I ever want that? Right. (laughs) Something attracted you, but (laughs) exactly. How about the unobtainable? Um, a painter painting, um, Fontana, the canvases with the slash in the, in the bright colors, blue, Mm -hmm. green, yellow, um, or white even, or black. But, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I don't think, like I said, I don't, I don't want to print, but I was watching one at, 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 Christie's and it was the last day of the sale. And I was like, Ooh, maybe everyone's sleeping. Of course they weren't, they were wide awake and drove the price up, you know, to, to, to fair market value. And I'll never buy something at really at fair market value. I always have to find a deal. So I don't think I'm ever going to find that for a price. <laughs> one day, one day. Feel good about. The page one rewrite. So if you could collect anything besides what you currently collect money, no object, what would it be and why? Diamonds. It's like single stones, fascinated by the cut, the clarity, by the scale. So I'd start grabbing big stones and just hanging on to them. And then I've always also loved old cars, but I hate the maintenance of it. And randomly, we have our place in in Montauk and we have a place in Portugal and our apartment in the city and we don't have a garage. So it is the most impractical thing (laughs) Um, you know, like I, the, the idea of having some, a car collection is ludicrous at the moment. So yeah, you really just need a moke. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love a moke actually. Yeah. So great. How about the goat? Is there anybody that you look up to in the collecting world? There's two, A.B. Rosen and his wife, Samantha Boardman. I think A.B. has like an unbelievable eye, unbelievable collection of, of, of paintings and and um, and furniture actually, and his wife Sam has like the most beautiful collection of signed jewelry um, from from people that a lot of people just don't even know and don't even wear. Like interesting, interesting things. Um, and then Ari Koppelman, former president of Chanel, he and his wife Coco live here in New York City, and he's been the chair of the Winter Antique Show for many many years. And I always thought, I'm very good friends with his daughter, and I always thought that, like, you know, he's this huge collector, this really successful guy. He's the chair of the Winter Antiques show. He's going to have all this, like, crazy, crazy blue chip, you know, wildly expensive, you know, things. And he invited me to, to the apartment not long ago just to see a new thing that he had bought. And I looked around and I realized the one thing that connects his entire collection is this sense of humor and whimsy. And it wasn't, you know, there are old things and they're all very valuable, beautiful things, but there's also things that are just, that he thinks are funny. And I I, I have such respect for that. Do you enjoy the hunt or the ownership more? The hunt. That was easy. (laughs) Definitely the hunt. Yeah, definitely the hunt. I've never really been disappointed. And, you know, I have my own channels to sell things that I don't want anymore like we talked about earlier, but the hunt is, the hunt is so exciting. Most importantly, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? thousand percent. (laughs) Nate Berkus, thank you so much for joining me today on Collector's Gene Radio. It's truly an honor and a pleasure for me to have you on. Uh, Like I said, I've been a fan of yours and and looked up to you uh, with everything that you've done since I can remember. Truly, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. It was great talking to you. Thanks a lot for having me. 
Next time I'm in New York, you, me, Jeremiah, we're going antique hunting. We're going to find some silver. I just want to go with you and your grandma. (laughs) You are more than welcome to come. I will definitely invite you next time. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks again. All right. That does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collector's Gene Radio.